Okay, so we're doing a Friday session of the Halusha. And if you're looking inside, you see the sort of upside-down looking nun before the first verse and then after the second. And Rashi is going to give one answer. There are other explanations on it. So let's just read the verse. We're in chapter 10, verse 35. When the ark, when the ark were journeying, Moses said, Arise, God, and let your enemies be scattered, and those who hate you flee from before you. I'm going to read the next verse. Keep the section together. And when it rested, he would say, Reside tranquilly, God, among the myriads and thousands of Israel. What are these upside-down nuns before the first and after the second? The Rashi says that the Torah is giving you signs that these verses do not belong here. This is not the correct place for them. And they should have appeared previously in chapter 2 when it's discussed the layout of the Israelite camp. It should have spoken about these verses that Moses would say by the journeying of the ark. But God, instead of putting them in chapter 2, waited until chapter 10, because this is a nice positive two verses. And we're in the section, a lot of negative things that we're talking about. We just began discussing this idea of them traveling from the mountain of God, which is an allusion to distancing themselves from God. This was like the first stirrings of what's going to be as we're going to discuss the very unjustified plea for meat. And then we're going to go into, right now, this pretext, these people that were making trouble and the, the fire of God that they brought down on themselves. So we won't want to just talk about from negative to negative to negative, so we're interjecting and cutting in something positive. Now, some of our sages look at these two verses as actually literally another book of Torah, meaning we think of the Torah as five books, um, but actually there's a way of dividing them into seven, which is until these two verses, and then that's the fourth book. The fifth book is these two verses. The sixth book is from after these verses, and the people like those who speak pretext until the end of Amidbar. And the seventh book is Deuteronomy, Devarim. So these two verses have incredible significance. So arise, God, because we, the ark traveled ahead of them a three-day journey. So Moses is saying, wait, 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 don't wait for us. Don't distance yourself even further. And let your enemies be scattered, those that are gathered together. And let those who hate you flee, meaning those who are pursuing. And um, so what we're saying here is that Moses is praying that one group be scattered and another group flee. So in other words, Rashi is explaining that the prayer to scatter is those that are gathered to attack, but haven't done so yet. The prayer to flee is those who are already pursuing the Jewish people. And those who hate you, what does it mean those who hate you? Those who hate the Jewish people. Whoever hates the Jewish people, so to speak, hates God. And then we said the next verse was, and when it rested, he would say, reside tran- tranquilly, God, among the myriads and thousands of Israel. To reside tranquilly, um, Rashi sometimes refers to a dictionary, a, a very early dictionary compiled by a sage named Menachem ben Saruk. His was called the Machperes the dictionary of the Hebrew language, of biblical Hebrew words, and Rashi refers to him. Rashi says here that Menachem, Menachem ben Saruk, translated this word shuva as tranquilly. Among the myriads and thousands of Israel, this is teaching us that the divine presence doesn't rest unless there's at least 22,000 people. 
because a myriad is 10,000 and it's in the plural, which makes it 20. And 1,000 is 1,000 and it's in the plural, which makes it 2. And 20 and 2 is 22. So we need 22,000 Jews, this minimum number, to bring down the divine presence. Of course, the divine presence also rests when there's 10 and the divine presence can rest on 1, which I'm at a certain level of God here. So now we go into a negative story. The people were like those who seek pretext of evil in the ears of God, and God heard, and his wrath flared, and the fire of God burned against them, and it consumed at the edge of the camp. So the people, in the Hebrew, ha'am, the term ha'am, people refer to wicked. When the Jews are in a good state, they're not called ha'am, the people, they're called ami, my people. They were seeking a pretext. A pretext means they were looking for an excuse to not follow God. So they were speaking evil in the ears of God. So what was their pretext? What was their complaint? They said, look at this. This is so bad. For three days where we're traveling nonstop, God's not giving us a rest. And God got really upset. Why did he get really upset? Because it's true. Why were you traveling for three days without a rest? Because God's saying, I'm pushing for you to enter the land of Israel. I see looming in the future that this decree of the spies, because if you get stuck in the desert, then you're going to send out the spies, then you're going to be stuck for another 39 years. So let's just get you in Israel and, and avoid all these issues. So I'm pushing, pushing, pushing for you to get to Israel, and you start complaining. It's like, I'm doing something to help you, and exactly what I'm doing to help you is what you're complaining about. So this fire came and burned the edge of the camp. So what does it mean, the edge of the camp? Rosh gives two explanations. First he says, like the lowest people, like they were the ones that got punished. Or he says, the great people. Why the great people? Because these great people is like the officers of the people that should have kept them in a good space. In other words, either we're saying the people that got burned were the sinners, like the Erevrav, this mixed multitude of people that converted, but not for godly reasons. When the Jews left Egypt, the Jews are like on the winning team, so to speak, and people like to jump on the bandwagon of the winning team. So there were Egyptians and other people that said, oh, we want to be Jewish like you. And Moses said, wow, okay, great. You want to serve God? That's beautiful. But they didn't really do it because of a desire to serve God. And throughout the years in the desert, we always see these people as the problem. Kabbalistically, some people say they, there still continues among the Jewish people this energy of Jews that are harming the Jews. But that would be the people then that got burned, these sinners. Uh, just as we saw them by the sin of the golden calf, and we'll see them in other places as starting up and their sins are inciting the Jews to also sin against God. Another explanation Rashi is saying is that these were like the higher people, like the officers, because they should have controlled the people and kept them from doing something so wrong. So there's this fire burning the people, either the low people, the Erevrav, or the great people. So the people cried out to Moses, Moses prayed to God, and the fire sank. The people cried out to Moses is like, we give a metaphor of there's a king who's angry at his son, and the son goes to the king's close friend and says, you know, please talk to his father for me. Here, in other words, we have these Jews, the son of God, being punished. So they go to Moses, God's good friend, and saying, you know, please take care of the situation. So it says the fire sank because if the fire had gone in any direction, wherever it would have gone, it would have destroyed. So it sank, sank directly into the earth not to cause any more harm. So that was one situation that happened that was very negative. And now we directly go into another very negative situation. I'm sorry, we have one more verse of this section. He named the place Tavera for the fire of God that burned against them. 
That was one negative situation. And now we're going directly into another negative situation. The rabble, again, the rabble here means the Erevrav, as we just discussed, as Rashi explains, those people that gather onto the Jewish people when the Jews left Egypt, who again were converts, but usually, of course, we think of a convert as a very, very high, very special person, but these people weren't converting from the pure and right intent, and therefore they actually, as I say, caused tremendous problems for the Jews. This Erevrav, that was among them, cultivated a craving. And the children of Israel also turned. They got pulled in. And they wept and said, who will feed us meat? So the children of Israel also turned, meaning they wept, they wept with them because we have the Erevrav complaining and pulling the Jews in to also complain. They have this, another, if we will, silly pretext of a complaint. Oh, we want meat. Now, why is that such a, you know, obviously problematic thing to say? Because they had meat. How do you know they had meat? Because it says when they left Egypt, the same where it placed, actually, it's kind of the same verse, which speaks about taking the Abraham, but it also says about taking all the flocks and cattle. Who were they complaining about meat? They had meat. The person could say, well, you know, they've already been in the desert for over a year. This is a little bit over a year after they left Egypt. Maybe they ate all the meat. It's three million people. But Rashi says that can't be true because, 39 years later, when they enter Israel, we speak about the enormous flocks of cattle that the children of Reuben and Gad have. So obviously a year into the desert, they still had meat. If 39 years later, they still have cattle. So what are they complaining about? They're looking for a pretext. They want to complain. They want to start up. They continued and said, we remember the fish that we would eat in Egypt free of carbs, the cucumbers and the melons, the leeks and the onions and the garlic. So what's going on here? The Egyptians didn't even give them straw, meaning they were slaves to Egypt, and they had to make these bricks and build these pyramids. At a certain point, when Pharaoh got upset because Moses was asking for the Jews to leave, he said, oh, really? Forget it. They're lazy. You know what? They're going to be the same slaves, and they have to produce the same number of bricks, but we're not even going to give them straw. They're going to find the straw, and they have to produce this number of bricks, and if they don't, everyone's going to get beaten because they're too lazy. So the Egyptians didn't even give them straw for the bricks that they were slaving away to make for the Egyptians. And the Egyptians would give them fish. Obviously, that makes no sense. What are they talking about? So it doesn't mean free of charge that the Egyptians were giving them fish for free. What it means is free of the commandment. They were eating without any obligation to serve God. And this, this concept, this phrase, is actually a phrase that it uses, that things of evil come for free. Like, in other words, in Egypt, so to speak, we got fish for free. Egypt represents evil. Godliness, nothing's for free. <laughs> Godliness, everything you pay for, because it's valuable, and therefore you have to pay the price. So they're remembering all these foods. Now, why are they remembering specifically these foods? And what are they worrying about different foods they didn't have? We know, you know, for almost a year now, they've been eating the month. And the month could change into any food you wanted, but it didn't change into these foods. All the foods they're listing here, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, the mud did not change into. Now, why not? Because these foods are all harmful for nursing women. And so we could say, all right, so the nursing women shouldn't have be able to take mud and make it garlic. But what about the rest of the Jewish people? I mean, how many? what's the segment of the population that are nursing women? But God said, no, because if you can have garlic and she can't, she'll feel bad. So nobody can have garlic. 
which also, interestingly enough, shows you that when the mun changed into a certain taste, it really affected the mun, meaning the properties of the food were obviously to a certain degree in the mun, because if it just was like, you know, artificially flavored garlic, artificially flavored onions, why would it harm the woman? Obviously, they were the properties of garlic or the properties of onion now in the mun that would be bad for the nursing woman, obviously bad for the baby. And therefore, no Jew's going to have it because these women shouldn't feel bad that they can't have it when everyone else can. Through these foods, explaining in old French what they are, cucumbers and the melons and the leeks. But now our life is parched. There is nothing, we have nothing before our eyes but the mun. Mun in the morning, mun in the evening. That's it. Aye. So there's a verse now, a few verses that discuss how amazing the man is. Meaning, the Jewish people are being horrible here. God is giving them the most precious, special food possible. It says in the time of the Messiah, we're going to open up with this huge feast, and the dessert's going to be man. The man was the most amazing thing. It was the food of the angels, the food of godliness. It could change to any taste you wanted. You, had, you did no work. You strolled out and gathered it. You didn't have to prepare it in any fashion. God every day handed it to you beautifully wrapped up and complaining. You're so ungrateful. Look at others of all things to complain about. You take the most precious gift and you complain about it. Oh my gosh, he bought me a diamond ring. I can't believe it. He knows I don't like this type of diamond. Oh my gosh, he's giving me money. I can't handle it. Now we have a few verses discussing how precious the money is to say like, look what they're complaining about. Now the money was like coriander seed and its color was like the color of the bidola. So to say the money was like coriander seed so first Rashi explains, as I just did, that God is responding and saying, you're complaining about the man? Look how precious the man is. This is a coriander seed. It means in its shape. It was sort of round, flat-like seeds. And it's, but it didn't look like coriander seeds because coriander seeds are dark. And it had the, the it was like a, Bidolok was like a type of crystal. So it was like flat seeds, crystal-like. The people would stroll and gather it. It was so easy. They're strolling and taking in their food. Sounds good. Grind it in a mill or pound it in a mortar and cook it in a pot. Make it into cakes. And it tasted like the taste of dough kneaded with oil. So they would stroll. I mean, it was so, there was no effort here. I'm giving you food effortless. It says that the man came for the most righteous. It came right by their doorpost doorposts, I mean, the openings of their tent, if you were a little less righteous, a little further, if you were less righteous, a little further, but still, even if you were really wicked, it was just a stroll away. And every day, God gave it to you, exactly what you needed. And it discusses all these things they could do with it, but Rashi says, not that they actually did any of these things. All they had to do was imagine this is how they want it. They want it to taste like something ground or pounded or cooked, and that's what would happen to it. They didn't have to do any work. And it tasted, it had like this moistness of oil. That's, um, that's what we're saying here, was the uh, natural taste of the mun before you decided, so to speak, what flavor you wanted it to be today. 